0: Hey, investors. This is Austin Lieberman with my friend, teammate, and fellow Floridian, most importantly, Matt Cochran. We are here with episode four of the 7 Investing Podcast. Last week, unfortunately, you were stuck with Steve and Simon, but you've got an upgrade this week with uh, Matt and myself. This week, we're going to be talking about how to think about valuing stocks. And when to use metrics like price to earnings, price to book, price to sales, some different types of companies that those might be good for, and some that they aren't. We've got a couple of listener questions uh, built into to these different topics. So thank you, everybody that that left us questions. We love incorporating those. And also thank you for listening. If if you enjoy these podcasts and our amazing senses of humor, then do us a favor and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Leave us a review and tell your two best friends to give us a listen so more people can find us. And then finally, if you're interested in becoming a premium member and getting our seven best ideas in the stock market every single month, then head on over to 7 and start a membership for just $17 a month. And that's the number 7investing.com. So today we're talking about uh, a lot of different terms and terminology. Before we go over them, we'll lay out the definition for you. And in case you want to find these terms, we use Y charts. They have a free support section with a glossary of financial terms, and that's where we got a lot of these terms from. So, up first, the first thing we want to we want to cover, and Matt's going to cover this one. We're going to talk about why we don't value stocks by the stock price.
1: Uh, that's right, Austin. Uh, yeah. So many people incorrectly assume that a stock with a, a low dollar price is cheap, while another with a heftier price is expensive. And this notion can lead investors down the wrong path and into some bad decisions with their money. So first of all, if you're comparing a $10 stock to a $100 stock and concluding the $10 stock is cheaper, you're, you're really you're comparing apples to oranges. And it's based on a misguided assumption. Every publicly traded company has a different number of shares, and the sum total of shares can vary widely from company to company. So for a quick example, if company A has a $100 billion market cap and has 10 billion shares, while company B has a $1 billion market cap and 100 million shares, both companies will have a share price of $10. But company A is worth 100 times more than company B. So what is the market cap? Real quick, the value... The market cap is the value of a company that is traded on the stock market, and it's just calculated by multiplying the total number of outstanding shares by the present share price. So I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me they only want to buy shares of companies that are low dollar amounts because they want to buy lots of shares. So they won't buy, say, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, just because they could only afford one share. And instead, they'd rather own 100 shares of a company with a $10 stock price. Uh, they you know, they think that a, a four digit share price is bad and feel that a $10 stock has a better chance of doubling than a $1,000 stock. But this is a misguided view. The $10 stock might be considered really overvalued and the, the $1,000 stock could be undervalued. The important thing to remember is like when you invest $1,000, when it goes up 10%, you make $100, no matter if you own one $1,000 share or $110 shares. Uh, and then finally, Don't look for stocks solely based on which are down the most from their recent highs. You know, a stock that just went from $40 to $4 is probably on its way to zero. And while a stock that goes from $10 to $20 is probably much more likely to double again to $40 than the one that is down 90%. Looking at a stock share price is only useful when taking many other factors into account.
0: Yeah, and Matt, you brought up a lot of good points there. And and this is something that I've experienced both when I first started investing, uh, kind of naturally thinking, "Hey, let me look at those those stocks with those lower share prices." And for one, it's because when I first started, you know, I didn't have as as much money. I didn't have a, the the same income that was coming in now, so naturally, I didn't have as much to add. And it's just so much more tempting to naturally think that those lower stock prices are can go up more just because they're smaller when, when really it has absolutely nothing to do, to do with it. Um, and you know, I think with the growth of you no know, commission trading and even fractional shares, I, I think, in, and hopefully, you know, more podcasts and information getting out there about investing, hopefully we can, we can be a part of what helps kind of change that perception a little bit and get people, people going in the right direction. And yeah. the only thing, the only thing I want to add is, is, and you kind of hit on it a little bit is Sometimes those, those lower dollar value share prices, they're low for a reason, especially if we're talking penny stocks or sub $5 share price stocks. Those can be really, really dangerous companies at times, especially if you're not uh, well-versed in, in micro caps or some of those smaller companies. They can be uh, very, very risky at times. So just want to throw that out there. Um, for investors, so yeah, thanks, Matt. That was a that was a good job um, covering that. So that leads us pretty well into how we actually want to think about getting ide- an idea of what the actual value of these stocks might be. And so, I think, Matt, the the first topic that would be good to talk about on that uh, ar- around that idea is the P/E ratio. Um, and some different ways to think about the PE ratio, and then and you'll we'll get into um, different ways that the PE ratio can be measured uh, based on gap and non-gap, which we'll talk about in a minute.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Austin. Yeah, so the PE ratio—it's probably the go-to metric uh, for nearly all investors when it comes to valuing a stock. Um, so it stands for, first of all, it stands for price to earnings. And this formula is calculated by dividing the stock price by the earnings per share. Uh, The lower the P-E ratio, the more earnings power investors are buying with each share. Or put another way, the less time it takes for a stock to pay investors back in earnings. The P-E ratio is often referred to as the multiple because it demonstrates how much an investor is willing to pay for $1 of earnings. Uh, so for a quick example, we're going to just walk through uh, Walmart. And if you're new to this or you, you want to try it out, you can uh, you can go through uh, Walmart when you, uh, when we're done with this podcast and see if you came up with the, the same results we did. Um, so if you want to practice, uh, for the fiscal 2020 fiscal year, uh, Walmart reported diluted earnings per share of $5.19. And to find that, you just Google Walmart Investor Relations and you click on its latest earnings report, which is right there on that page. And last week, uh, I did prep for the show over the weekend. Uh, last week, the, the price of the company's shares closed at $121.80. So that's that's the uh, metric I'll be using for the price of the shares. And to so to obtain the PE ratio, we simply divide the stock price by the EPS. So we take 121.80 divided by 519, and that's 23.47. And we can round it up a bit and just call it 23.5. And that's how you figure out the PE ratio.
0: And Matt do you when it comes to decimals I noticed you rounded up there do you do you like to go to the closest whole number or do you prefer to stick to the first decimal place and can you just talk about like why that might matter why it might not matter as much
1: yeah I think there was a a Warren Buffett or or Charlie Munger quote I mean there's there's one of those two guys. There's a quote for uh, nearly everything in investing from one of those two guys, but there's there's something like when you, one one of them said something like, "If you have to figure something out to the third or fourth decimal place, uh, you know you're doing something wrong." Um, so like, yeah, I just round up to to one decimal place, but you know, there's no right or wrong answer there. You can be as exact as you want, but there's really no difference, or I can't imagine a difference between, say, twenty three point five, what I rounded up to, and however many decimal points you want to carry that where it would make a difference in an investment decision.
0: Yeah. Yep. And so you just talked about gap or generally accepted accounting principles. How about non-gap?
1: So, Okay. So, right. We've got 23.5, and that is using GAAP earnings. And also, that's the number you're going to find on financial websites. Uh, Like over the weekend, when I I checked Morningstar or YChart, that's the exact number they had because they use GAAP earnings. And as you said, that just stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. And GAAP is a set of universal standards for public companies to follow when reporting their earnings. And while the GAAP rules were given so that a universal standard exists, to keep some companies from hiding the company's performance from investors, the truth is they do not always show an accurate snapshot of how a business is performing. So there are plenty of reasons why the gap earnings might not present a true picture of a particular company's business. So perhaps the company sold off a struggling division and now according to Gap, has to count the proceeds as earnings in that quarter making it look like the earnings jumped, or maybe the company recorded a huge one-time tax benefit that caused earnings to temporarily spike. And so for this reason, a lot of companies, but not all, also present adjusted or non-gap earnings in an attempt to more honestly report how the business is performing. So looking at Walmart, we see this is the case for it as well. Uh, Again, on the company's fourth quarter earnings report, uh, which is again is available on the company's IR website. They reported, reported a full year adjusted EPS of $4.93. And if you scroll down in that report a little more, like if you go to page 15, they show the things they use to reconcile their gap earnings to their adjusted earnings. And so for Walmart, uh, things like um it showed a loss on its investment in JD.com this corner. Uh, it showed some business restructuring fees and income tax matters. And so using the adjusted EPS, uh, we find Walmart's PE ratio just a little more expensive. And so now we take the stock price, 121.80, divided by 493, and we cut to
0: 24.7. Great. So it's good to it's good to be aware of some of the differences between Gap in non-GAAP. And then I think more importantly, why some of those differences exist.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, like uh, you kind of, and, and if you're making an investment in a company too, sorry to cut you off there, Austin, but like you, you want to, you, you probably want to be familiar with both. And if you're using adjusted, you want to know why you're using adjusted. And if you're using gap, you want to know why, and you want to know what adjustments or reconciliations they put in there to get to both those numbers.
0: Yeah. Yep. Great. So let's kind of, hit the home stretch on the PE ratio and talk to me a little bit about the forward PE ratio and, and what do you think about with that?
1: Sure. So the forward uh, PE is um, it's easy enough to find, uh, to solve for when you already know the PE ratio, the forward PE ratio is the exact same equation with one substitute. Instead of using the EPS from the trailing 12 months, we used the projected EPS the company is expected to produce over the next fiscal year. So, in other words, the formula is calculated by dividing the stock price by the company's expected future earnings. Uh, Personally, I prefer to use the company's guidance if it provides these figures, but others prefer to use analyst estimates. Uh, So, in the case of Walmart, again, from its fourth quarter earnings report, it provided fiscal year 2021 guidance of $5 to $5.15. So when a company provides a range like that, I take the midpoint and calculate the forward PE ratio using that. So in that case, I would take the stock price, one twenty one, eighty, and I would divide it by five point zero seven five, and with that we come to twenty four. And so you're still in that same range again uh, as the the current PE or the trailing PE, uh, and that's often the case for slow growing, more mature companies such as Walmart.
0: Really good conversation there on PE ratio. That's that was our first financial topic that we were going to talk about. The second is the price to sales or PS ratio. Generally, the type of company that I personally invest in and that you'll see me, that our members see me recommend for 7investing are uh, software companies and companies that have uh, recurring revenue, companies like Netflix, maybe Google, even Amazon. Those are some of the bigger companies, and then some of the software companies, some popular ones: Zoom, Okta, uh, Alteryx, different companies like that. A lot of times, those are looked at with a uh, from a PS a price to sales ratio perspective rather than price to earnings. And one of the big reasons why is because generally those companies don't have earnings or they have negative earnings because they're, rein-
1: <gasps> <No>! <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. they're reinvesting uh, a lot of their earnings or all of their earnings and more back into uh, the company to ideally continue to grow, grow the company for longer. And there's, you know, age old arguments on this and, and different people feel different ways about, you know, if they're value investors, they might not like that. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, is that this model, if done correctly, can produce amazing returns. And we just have to look at companies like Netflix and Amazon who have been uh, unprofitable from a PE ratio perspective for almost their entire existence because they were wanting to grow and invest back this can get dangerous. There's companies that can abuse it for sure. So, by definition, and this is from Y charts, the uh, PS ratio is calculated by dividing stock price by the revenue per share. It is most useful for companies within a sector or industry because normal values for this ratio vary from industry to industry. In general, low price to sales ratios are more appealing because they suggest that a company is undervalued. And the key in that definition is that you need to compare companies in the same industry. So Matt just used Walmart for a PE ratio example. And so we'll do an interesting exercise with Walmart, uh, from a PS ratio price to sales ratio. And then we'll talk a little bit about why that might not be the the right measurement for, for Walmart and why PE is probably better. So Matt is ultra prepared. He prepared before the weekend, uh, I, of course, did not, so I'm going with today's closing stock price, uh, Monday, April 13th. Walmart stock price is $125.12. Their revenue per share, and Matt talked about where you can find this, you can find it in their uh, reports on their investor relations page, $182.69. So If you divide the stock price by revenue per share, the current price to sales ratio is And a key here is is your PE and PS ratios are going to change daily. So those are going to change every single day. So just be aware that, you know, depending on what the stock price is, that'll change the the measurement from day to day. Another way you can get to price to sales ratio, and this is a lazy person's way, is uh, if you just find the market cap, the market capitalization, and divide that by trailing 12 months revenue. You can find both those numbers again on the investor relations pages or on almost any financial uh, data source, CNBC, Morningstar, Y charts, any place like that. Uh, many of them are free. Uh, so Matt, you want to talk a little bit about why PE ratio is probably the better metric for
1: Walmart? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Walmart is a mature company. It's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's high growth days are behind it. Um, even though I'm sure, uh, you know, there's, there's probably lots of reasons to be bullish on the company. Um, once a company has reached a mature phase though, where it's been profitable for a long time, it's past its high growth days. Um, I would, I would much rather use a PE ratio to evaluate a company like that than a price to sales ratio. But for companies, uh, um, like the companies, uh, UP for Austin are, that a lot of us prefer, like the, the SaaS stocks or you know, uh, companies that are in their earlier days and have not yet reached a consistently profitable phase, um, where if you try to use a PE ratio to be like a negative number or a, a thousand or just something kind of ridiculous like that, uh, the price to sales ratio probably gives you a better um, idea of where it's valued.
0: Yeah, great. All right, moving to the next term. I was calling them topics earlier, but term is the word I was looking for. Price to book ratio. And we're only gonna lightly cover this one um, because really this this doesn't factor into Matt or my, uh, we don't evaluate companies generally by price to book ratio. Um, So Matt, you wanna cover price to book real quick?
1: Yeah, sure. So, it, you know, price to book ratio. It's um, it's a company's book value is equal to a company's assets minus its liabilities, uh, which is all found on the company's balance sheet. So, the book value per share is determined by dividing the book value by the number of outstanding shares for a company. So, to solve for the ratio, um, it's a little more little more steps involved in this. Uh, you divide the share price by the book v- book value per share. So, first, you take the assets minus liabilities to get the book value, and then you divide the book value by the outstanding shares to get the book value per share. And then you take the share price and you divide it by the book value per share. And that gives you the price to book ratio. So um, that is a little bit more complicated uh, than the ratios we mentioned above. And it's not too useful for asset-like business models, like software tech companies. And like personally, like Austin alluded to, we, I don't use it too much when I evaluate companies. It is useful uh, when evaluating banks and other financial institutions that carry a number of assets on their balance sheets or say a large company with uh, lots of heavy equipment or lots of real estate properties. Uh, for instance, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, it's a perfect company to use because of its uh, assets and equity in companies. It, it's a great metric to use for a company like Berkshire Hathaway. Um, but for investors, it's, it's just another tool in the toolbox that can be useful when evaluating certain types of companies.
0: Yeah, and we have a uh, request out to Warren Buffett to get him to come on the podcast and uh, talk to all of our millions of listeners about price to book ratio. So as soon as he says yes, we'll uh, we'll have him on, and we can we can do ten episodes on price to book ratio with uh, our our esteemed guest Warren Buffett.
1: We'll talk about whatever he wants to talk about.
0: When he goes, I'll talk about cheeseburgers with him. We can talk about anything.
1: So moving moving to
0: our next term. And it's going to be our final term before we get to listener questions. We're going to talk about building a discounted cash flow. And Matt, because he's smarter than me, is also going to cover this one. So go ahead, Matt.
1: No problem. Um, So just so you know, a a discounted cash flow or DCF is a valuation method used to estimate the value of an investment based on its future cash flows. So DCF analysis attempts to figure out the value of an investment today based on projections of how much money it will generate in the future. Uh, The purpose of DCF analysis is to estimate the money an investor would receive from an investment adjusted for the time value of money. The time value of money assumes that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow because it can be invested. So as such, a DCF analysis is appropriate in any situation where a person is paying money in the present with expectations of receiving more money in the future. Um, we're not going to go into detail, like how to build this on this podcast It's probably not the best medium for it. This is a more advanced, uh, but there's a lot of assumptions that go into a DCF and, and really anytime you're talking about projections out, like we were just talking about a forward PE ratio or a forward price to sales ratio, when you're using expected earnings for the next year to figure out those ratios, even those are 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 assume a lot because you assume that the company can meet its guidance and like for instance when walmart came out with its forward uh when it will for its eps projections for this next fiscal year i am sure it did not calculate the immense disruption the coronavirus would would throw into just this year and when you build a dcf um when you build the dcf you're projecting years and years and years of projections um Uh, for your analysis. And so there's a lot of assumptions going there. And and so for that reason, you're also, you also have to um, guess or project what interest rates will be and the terminal value of investments. And because of that, it's not really something I like to use too much.
0: I've never built a DCF. And the reason that I have never done it is because of the reasons you talked about that there's so many things that have to be forecasted and correct uh, for multiple years that the minute one of those things changes interest rates or an unfortunate global pandemic that changes absolutely everybody's world, then the entire model is, is out the window. Right. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, Matt said, you know, it's, it's a more advanced topic and, and not something that, that he does often. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of investors that like to do that, but, but if you're thinking about investing, don't feel like that's something that you have to use in order to be an investor and invest in individual companies. It's, it's an option. It's kind of a tool in the toolbox, if you will.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I agree with that Austin. Yeah. It's, it's something that uh, a lot of uh, value investors like to use, but I, again, I just find so many assumptions baked into it. Like I just don't, I don't personally find it useful.
0: Yeah. All right. So we, we covered our kind of our basic topics and terminology And now, Matt, we'll answer. We had some listener questions, and I I like these listener questions because they're going to drive, I think, some good conversation and kind of some real world application and examples of how we can use these different metrics, these different terms in our investing process. All right, let's do it. Yeah, we we had uh, Daniel Joshua Rubin. He's at Dan Joshua Rubin on Twitter. Um, He's, first of all, Daniel, thank you. You've been very supportive of Sam Bessing. I've also interacted with you and consider you a, a friend uh, as, as much as we could be friends over Twitter, but I think we'd be friends in real life too. So uh, thanks for yep. thanks for all your all your support. Matt, I don't I'm not your friend. I was talking to Daniel. <laughs>
1: uh I was talking um, to Daniel too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So he asked us, uh, he's always interested in a deeper understanding of of exactly in most practical terms, an allegedly overvalued stock like Zoom, ticker ZM, what they must do to grow and to silence critics with valid concerns. So, Daniel brings up a great point. There's a lot of overvalued stocks out there, and he chose kind of Zoom as the example. Zoom has been all over the news lately. They've been in the news for good reasons, and then they've Also, been in the news for some very negative reasons. So, real quick, talk about as of April 13th, why has Zoom been in the news recently? Well, we had the global pandemic, and almost the whole world moved to working from home. In December of 2019, Zoom had 10 million daily active users. At some point in March, they had over 200 million daily active users so that is 19 times the growth in a matter of 2 months and uh it's pretty incredible that zoom has been able to scale that way with as little the the small amount of performance issues that we have we use it at uh, seven investing all the time, and we've noticed a couple hiccups here and there, but for the most part it's been it's been performing extremely well but in order to scale and get that that large, they inadvertently kind of skipped some steps that they needed to to put in place and some some basically server routing uh practices that they generally do where uh, if a meeting is happening outside of China, they don't route any of those meetings or the data from those meetings through their China servers. With all of this, all of these new users, they had actually forgotten a step in the process to where a, f- a few, and I don't know how many, but it, it was a small number of meeting data and meetings that were happening outside of China actually were routed through Zoom's China servers. And it, they were still on Zoom servers, they were still, you know, secure according to Zoom, but that that as well as some what's called zoom bombing and different security issues have happened on the platform. So this is uh, people kind of joining meetings that they weren't supposed to join by using the links. What I believe happened as a person and as an investor is I think uh 100 And 50 million people who really aren't familiar with um, how to stay secure on these platforms just kind of started using this platform kind of recreationally. And these are people like teachers, uh, just people using it to host social things and weddings and all kinds of different, I mean, as many use cases as you can think about. All of these hundreds of millions of people started using this platform of course there's there's going to be some people that didn't understand the the security measures and and unfortunately had some really bad experiences in their meetings and and then when that happens it gets amplified and it's totally blown up and so now for I feel like for the last 2 weeks we've seen nothing but security security news headlines about how bad zoom security was but the bottom line is and this gets back to Daniel's question after my extremely long-winded coverage they grew their platform, their users by 19x. When Zoom was around $120 per share, I I said that I think it's undervalued and I think we could see it 200 plus soon, 200 plus per share, which from 120 is about a, what, I don't know, 60% increase or something like that. Bad at math on the fly. And here's how I got to that. And this Daniel, I think, talks to what you asked, is what do they have to do to silence the critics that it's not overvalued? As of December 2019, they had 10 million users. That quarter, they had $188.3 million in revenue and 130% dollar-based net expansion rate. And what that means is that their customers generally spend 130% of what they spent the year before. So each year they're spending 30% more than they did the previous year. So did a little off the napkin math thinking, okay, some of their users might cut some of their spend on the platform. So I cut the current users, those 10 million users that by uh, to 75% So the next year, they're going to spend 75% of what they did. So less than what they did the previous year instead of 130%. So it's pretty conservative. And that brings us to $141 million of revenue in this coming quarter. But then if you add those 190 million users that they grew the platform by and cut the value of their users, so before they had 10 million users, $188 million in revenue. That's uh, $18 million of revenue per user. So if you cut that to uh, $14 million per 10 million users, then you come up with first quarter 2021 revenue of $407 million. And so that would be More than 100% revenue growth from 188.3 million. And so quickly, this price to sales ratio of Zoom, which is currently at 55, if you double revenue, more than double revenue to 407 million, that price to sales ratio is going to come down pretty quickly. But there's a chance that they actually monetize better than that. And so we could potentially see 200% revenue growth or 250% revenue growth. And if that happens, then that price-to-sales ratio, which right now is considered overvalued and extremely high, could come down significantly and it starts to be priced like a company that's growing at 25% or 30%, uh, which, is, which is a lot more conservative than, than what it's priced at now. So if Zoom is able to monetize all these new users uh, in any, anywhere close to what they've monetized their current users, and then even if their their current users spend less we still have a situation where zoom could grow their revenue by 100 to 300% basically and become a almost what i would say is an undervalued stock instead of overvalued and so matt i just rambled a lot what uh what do you what are your thoughts on zoom
1: so like you you make a a good case for for justifying its valuation what i would throw in there what i would say would would keeps me away from investing in a company like zoom is because of its price and so much good news is already baked in doesn't it make it a lot riskier for investors uh to to invest in it because so there's a lot of scenarios where like i could throw out where those things don't come to fruition or even if they do for this quarter when this pandemic ends they lose uh, a lot of those new users, uh, you know, because people won't have to use Zoom as much. And so what if the next year the revenue actually goes down, uh, you know, like it creates really hard comparables going forward to to have all this growth in at once. Or if these security issues become more important or just the perception of those security issues uh, could keep people away and look for alternatives. Like, how do you factor in that risk when making an investment in a company like zoom because so much good news is already baked into that price
0: yeah yeah and i mean that's a that's a really valid point matt and i I, like that's why zoom to me right now is one of the most interesting companies around and and one of the most interesting stocks because it's like there's there's a lot of people who really like it there's it must be working well with users. It's easy to use. It's why all these people flock to it. But then there's, there's the risk that comes with investing in the company. And so it's, it's a super polarizing company. It almost, it's weird. It almost reminds me of, of Tesla. Um, And the bottom line is I think, you know, for me um, and, and for people who are maybe considering investing in zoom, this is one where you'd probably start with a, a smaller position, especially if you're, if you're uncomfortable with some of those things, if you wanted to invest in it. And to me, it's the type of company where owning a little bit of it over time um, could be enough. But then if you only are, if you only own a little bit of it and it happens to crash and go to zero or or something, which I don't think is going to go to zero, but if it happens to crash, then it's not going to hurt your portfolio too much. I personally think that.
1: Do you, do you have an investment in zoom right now?
0: I do. Yeah. Uh it and it was one of my larger holdings until recently which I am far too active in my investments right now. Um you? But it <laughs> it was one of my largest holdings and now it's kind of like a I would say medium-sized holding. So pretty pretty significant position for me, but Um, and the the reason I'm investing is I believe in the company, I believe in management. I think these security concerns are overblown, not that bad things didn't happen, but they've got 200 million users and all we're hearing about are the bad stories right now. And there's, you know, hundreds of millions or not hundreds of millions, but millions of people who use it and have had great experiences with it. And I think what we're undervaluing and underappreciating is their ability to, uh, monetize the platform over time and and those users. And the argument is that there's a lot of competition, it's it, there's no moat, it's really easy to just go to the next video platform. But it once you get somebody on one of these video platforms that just works and then they've got Zoom phone and all these different products, it it I believe it can be very sticky. And as long as they nail this security thing, which I think they're doing, they just announced 90 days of no new feature updates. They're only going to focus on security. And they admitted to being wrong about the security issues and the CEO came out and said they want to fix it. All of these things, um, to me, make a case for investing in in the company right now. And uh, the, the other thing that's impressive is just as a company, their operational excellence to be able to scale their platform by 19 times in two months and even make it happen. It's incredible that they were able to do that. And when you, they've also got um, part of their team is in China too, which was hit with the first part of the coronavirus. And so they had to manage that and then their US team. And so what they've been able to pull off as a company is just incredible, and, and that's the type of company that I'm willing to put my my dollars behind and uh, take take a chance on, basically. Um, but there's risks associated with it, for sure.
1: Sure, sure, that, that makes sense. We've got
0: one other question that we're gonna cover today, and it's from Chris Som on Twitter. So I'm gonna, and he actually sent in a recording, so thanks, Chris. Hey, 7investing team, Chris Som here. With traditional valuation metrics being less relevant for high-growth SaaS companies, what valuation metrics do you use for evaluating high-growth SaaS? Which metrics do you place priority on and why? What are the standard values for those metrics? And how do you think about monitoring the performance of those values over time through quarterly and yearly reports? Thanks. Again, Chris, good question. And, and thanks for asking it. There's, I invest almost exclusively in SaaS companies and there's basically five things that I pay attention to. Actually six things that I pay attention to. The The first is quarterly year over year revenue growth. So that's pretty simple. It's just how fast is a company growing revenue compared to uh, the same quarter in the previous year. I like to look for companies that are growing at 40% plus. The second is, is total revenues, total trailing 12 months revenue. And the reason I look at this right after I look at quarterly revenue growth is because as companies grow their annual revenue, they start to hit what's called the law of large numbers, which makes it more challenging to continue growing revenue by the same percentage as revenue gets larger. And, and so if I see a company like Okta, that is growing year over year revenue by 45% with $586 million in trailing 12 month revenue. I'll compare it to a company, similar company in, the, in a, um, another SaaS company. So Okta is kind of a security and identity company for anyone that doesn't know. Ticker is OKTA. Another SaaS company is Atlassian, Ticker T E A M team. team. And they're more of kind of a project management. They've got a number of different project management tools. They're growing at 37% year over year, their revenue. But they've got $1.4 billion in trailing 12 months revenue compared to Okta's 586 million. So both these are very impressive companies and that's an impressive growth rate. But to me, when I think about it just on those terms, I actually think Atlassian's 37% growth Is a little bit more impressive because they've got a a 1.4 billion in revenue. The third metric I'll look at with SaaS companies is gross margins. And so real quick, gross margin is a difference between sales and the cost of goods sold divided by revenue. This represents a percentage of each dollar of a company's revenue available after accounting for costs of goods sold. So quick example, if a company produces phones and earns 32 million in sales, but they pay 24 million for the items sold, then the company's gross, gross profit margin would be 32 million minus 24 million divided by 32 million, which comes out to be 25%. And so same example, uh, the same two companies, Okta's gross margin is 73%, and Atlassian or Teams gross margin is 83%. So comparing those two companies there, on gross margin, Team is also, Atlassian also has a, a better gross margin. So higher would be better. The fourth metric I look at is sales and marketing as a percentage of annual revenue. And this is pretty basic. It's just how much of their annual revenues are they spending on sales and marketing? The reason I personally like this is because I believe as companies get more mature and their products get more mature, it should be easier for them to. Sell their product, and so they should over time spend less of a percent of their revenues on sales and marketing. Okta's right now is at 58 percent, and this makes sense. Okta's is a little bit um, newer in terms of when they went to market than Atlassian, who has uh, 22 percent sales and marketing as a percentage of revenue. Atlassian is actually pretty famous for how efficient they are. In terms of uh, their their sales and marketing spend. So 22% is actually really low. But again, when we're just comparing these two companies, Atlassian actually has a more impressive sales and marketing as a percentage of revenue growth there with 22%. The fifth metric I'll look at is operating margin. And so we haven't defined this yet. I'm going to define it real quick. Operating margin measures the proportion of revenue left over after paying the variable cost for production. It's an important indicator of efficiency and profitability. Operating margins can be used to demonstrate management effectiveness in maintaining costs or increasing revenues. High operating margins or increasing margins over time demonstrate management's effectiveness in increasing operating profits, whereas declining operating margins can point out significant weaknesses in company growth. And so basically, I look at operating margin. I want to see that improving over time because if I do, then that tells me the company, even if it's if they're still negative, which I'm okay with, I want to see them at least moving, improving that number over time and getting closer to profitability. So on an operating uh, margin perspective, is at minus 32% and Atlassian is at minus 1.6%. So that means they're almost break-even with a, with a positive operating margin. And finally, and this is really the order that I look at these things at price to sales ratio is actually the sixth metric that I'll look at. And with that, I actually look at it relative to similar companies and then compared to that same stocks, high, low, and average price to sales ratio over time. And this is one of the reasons I absolutely love Y charts. It makes this so easy to do. Um, but another quick example with these two companies, Okta is at a 27 price of sales ratio. Their high, the highest they've ever had, according to Y charts is 35. Their low is 8.5. And then their average is 19. So they're sitting at 27 and their average is 19. So they're, they're pretty high above what their average has been. And then Atlassian is sitting at a 24 price of sales ratio. Their high is 29. Their low is 11.5 or 11.5. And then their average is 20. So Atlassian is only 20% above their average, but they're also closer to the high end of their price to sales ratio than Okta is to theirs. So really, if I'm looking at, if I was just comparing these two companies, right now, I on these metrics, I actually believe that Atlassian ha- is the better investment case than Okta. Just kind of looking at what we had. Now, there's a lot of other things you look at. You look at, you know, what's the what's the business? What what's the model? What are they doing now with coronavirus? Hey, this, is it something that's going to work with people working from home? And both of these companies' products do, so they're kind of even there. But that's kind of how I think about that stuff. Uh, Matt, do you have anything to add on it?
1: Yeah, no, Austin, I think I I look at a lot of the same things you look at. Like, for instance, I look at the net uh, revenue retention rate also, uh, which, like, as you touched on, is just how much are their existing customers spending more each year. I look at the churn rate, uh, like how much are they losing customers uh, every year. I want to see that, especially for these uh, highly valued stocks, I want to see that above 90%. I want to see a really sticky uh, product that they have evidence of a sticky product, and then finally, I, I try to look at even though this is a very inexact science, I try to look at their total addressable market. So if I if I see a soft a SaaS company with a what I consider to be a, a niche product, uh, I, it just doesn't interest me as much, especially if it's already highly valued. Than I do with one say with a with a much more uh, what could be a more universal platform. So companies like Salesforce or ServiceNow which I, I believe have much higher addressable markets, I'm more attracted to than than companies that I just consider more of a niche product.
0: Great point. I've actually gotten kind of caught and in, invested in a couple smaller companies with more uh, niche or niche niche products. And so two that I kind of made mistakes on in the last year are actually PagerDuty and Anaplan who, you know, both of them at different times had, had done well and they kind of just bumped up against some competition or, you know, whatever it was. And both of them suffered.
1: It's funny you said pager duty because that's exactly one that I just never could get into because I just never, I just never understood how big its market could be. Yeah. Um, And so you, you were
0: right, Matt, you, you were right. All right. And I, I got crushed in pager duty. Matt, thanks for spending some time with me. This evening, I know it's late for both of us, but the millions of listeners we have out there, they demand it, you know, and so sometimes you just got to put the hours in. It was a lot of fun, Austin. Thanks. Yeah. And, and hey, seriously, uh, we don't have millions of listeners. We appreciate uh, every single one of you that's listening and just it feels like you're all on our team and supporting us along the way. Uh, again, please subscribe, leave us a review and share this out with your friends and family. And again, if you're interested in checking us out and learning more about our memberships, just check us out at seveninvesting.com. Next week, we're actually gonna have all four, we're gonna get the band back together and have all four of us together because then our May picks will be coming out the week after that. So we like to all get together and kind of brainstorm and talk about some things that happened in the last month and what's coming up for the next month. So that'll be our next episode. So tune in for that.